Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Presumption of Innocence, a podcast brought to you by the White Collar Criminal Defense and Regulatory Compliance Practice Group at Fox Rothschild. I'm your host, Matt Adams, and one of the co-chairs of the practice, and today I have the great pleasure of being joined by my friend and partner, Joseph DiMaria. Joseph is based out of our Miami, Florida office. He's a former federal prosecutor and a member of our practice group, and today we're talking about the things you need to know if you do business overseas about the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. And there's a lot to unpack, so Joe, let's dive right into it. What exactly is the FCPA? As I see it, it's unique among federal statutes in the fact that it actually gives federal prosecutors jurisdiction over conduct that happens offshore. But talk to us about it in general sense. It's in essence, you're right, but let's back it up. You know, first of all, what is the FCPA? It's a bribery statute, or what we call a bribery and a kickback statute. So, first of all, let's talk about bribery in general. It's the oldest crime in the books. I mean, it's back in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Quran, you name it. It's been here for as long as man has existed. And so the FCPA came on board in 1977, but it's important to understand what led to the FCPA. So the United States, our society is no different than any other society. It's been subject to issues of bribery ever since we've existed. And on a state and federal level, over time, the governments have put in laws to criminalize bribery, trying to put a stop at bribery because of the anti-competitive aspect of bribery. If two different companies are trying to obtain a government contract, for example, or a healthcare contract, and one of the companies pays a bribe and gets an advantage, then the thought is that's an unfair field, and they want to make it an equal field for all competitors. So that, in general, is where you get the notion of anti-bribery laws. You also have it as part of public corruption. A lot of government money comes out of government contracts, and the notion is that you shouldn't be paying a government official to get a contract. So we get to the late 1970s, and after the Nixon administration ended and during the Watergate investigation, they found that among many other crimes during that administration was the crime of foreign bribery. And what you had was American companies that were paying bribes primarily to foreign governments, because that's in the foreign specter, that's where the contracts come from, whether it's energy or mineral extraction or construction, uh, or transportation, those big contracts worth a lot of money were being bid out by the foreign governments and the American companies, or at least some American companies, were paying bribes. And the notion was that that was anti-competitive and that one American company was getting a leg up on another American company by paying a bribe. So the Congress, during the Ford administration, passed the FCPA law to prohibit foreign bribery, and it focused on two aspects. First, the actual bribery uh, criminalization, which is prosecuted by the Department of Justice, focuses on what's called a domestic concern, either a domestic company or an individual, an American or a person with a green card, but somebody who has a domestic touching to the U.S. It would not be that if it was a foreigner bribing a foreign government, that's not going to be an FCPA. It's got to be something that touches the United States. The other aspect of the FCPA was that if you were a company that was on a stock exchange or otherwise had to file public reports regulated by the SEC, that if you had a foreign bribery and you didn't report it, that would be a reporting violation. So the FCPA has both direct violations for those who participate in foreign bribery as well as reporting violations. That's how it started. Can you think of another federal statute that criminalizes conduct that happens offshore? The only other ones I think are in the post-9-11 era, 
which are the anti-terrorism laws, uh, because there is a notion in our Constitution of extraterritoriality, and the, and the Supreme Court in particular has been careful to say that we don't want Congress uh, basically criminalizing or, or even uh, legislating outside the borders of the United States for the most part because of rules of what they call comedy, which is that if we do it to a foreign country, then the foreign countries are going to want to do it to us. So in general, we tend to try to limit our legislation and our criminal legislation to within our borders. However, there are circumstances where they cross the borders. And, and I think the clearest case is after 9-11 in the fight on terrorism, which then also led to an expansion of the money laundering laws, which, as you'll see in our conversation, has an effect on the FCPA. I think in those two areas, we've gone beyond the territory of the United States. Now, talk to us a little bit about the penalty structure. Now, the, the FCPA is, is, is a civil and a criminal statutory mechanism. Talk to us about what kind of penalties the government has at its disposal for, for enforcement. So let's first talk about from the standpoint of the SEC, the Department of Justice. And if they're looking at a company that has violated their reporting requirements, that's when you're going to get significant fines against the company and possibly even the imposition of what's called a monitor if they think that the conduct is so egregious that they need to, to uh, basically have an independent person monitoring the activities of the company. What happened was during the Bush administration, there was an infamous case where Arthur Anderson was prosecuted, an accounting firm having arisen out of the Enron crisis, and that company failed. That was one of the big fours, and it failed. So the government since then has been reluctant to go directly after companies and take them down for this kind of activity. Instead, what they'll do is they'll end up imposing significant fines at the company level. That's at one level, the company. At the individual level, you have two aspects, which is they don't typically come after the individual from the SEC level. They come after them from the Department of Justice level, and that's where they're going to prosecute you. And then the prosecution has two components. You have the going to jail component, the incarceration, and then you have a very aggressive use of the forfeiture laws to basically disgorge uh, the money that was earned uh, through the payment of the bribe as well as the extra profit that was earned through the payment of the bribe. So there's both a financial consequence as well as the incarceration consequence for the individual. At the company level, it tends to be the money. There's actually been some federal judges who've been critical of that because they say it's the shareholders that end up paying because the value of the company gets diminished, whereas the bad guys who committed the acts need to be prosecuted individually. And we can get into that a little bit later, and you'll see how the Biden administrations address that. But for the most part, individuals face incarceration and forfeiture, and companies face a fine, a substantial fine, and potential for a corporate monitor. And I do but, want to touch on, Joe, some of the what you just hit on about the use of this tool by the current administration. But I want you to just unpack for a moment the concept of bribery. What's the difference between paying a bribe, the illegal conduct, versus, say, for example, you know, something less than a bribe? It's a very good question, and the law distinguishes between bribery and kickbacks on the one side, which are illegal, and gratuities, which are not. So let's start with that. Under the FCPA, the payment of a gratuity is not illegal. What is a bribe or a kickback? It has to be with the notion of the Latin words quid pro quo, this for that, which is why I tell you this is the oldest crime known to man. It goes back to the Romans. And what it meant was I'm giving you something in return for you giving me something. So there has to be at least a tacit or an implicit agreement. It doesn't have to be expressed. So let's say you're the government official that's going to be awarding a transportation contract 
in a foreign country and I go into you and I'm wanting that contract and I happen to give you something for it. I give you a payment for it. If there's that tacit agreement, the quid pro quo, that's what turns it into a bribery. Now, the government, the Department of Justice, has detailed FCPA guidelines that kind of guide issues such as taking somebody on a trip, taking somebody to dinner, giving somebody tickets to a show. And there's all these guidelines. There's a whole industry of compliance now under the FCPA of what one can do and what one cannot do without crossing the line. But there is a difference between a gratuity, which is not illegal, and a bribe or a kickback, quid pro quo, which is illegal. Sounds to me like when you're looking at this this issue, you're definitely going to be looking at a lot of circumstantial evidence as opposed to direct evidence of quid pro quo, as opposed to, hey, you know, we went to dinner and it just so happened we talked about business and thereafter the deal got done. That's true, except you would be amazed how many people convict themselves through their emails. Uh, I'm involved in the case presently, an FCPA case where the government basically made the case based on the WhatsApp messages. If anybody knows what WhatsApp is, it's one of those apps that you're supposed to be able to have encrypted conversations, uh, which can be used foreign and domestically. The whole idea is you don't save your conversations, you don't archive them. On the case I'm involved in, which has to do with the bribery in Latin America, the individuals involved in the bribery kept their WhatsApp messages, and when they came into the United States at Miami International Airport and Fort Lauderdale Airport, Customs uh, used a pretext to get access to their phones, and then they downloaded the phones, and they had the messages, and they made the case based on the messages. So you'd be surprised on how many people save messages that implicate them in a bribery scheme. So it's not purely circumstantial. You've given us a great overview of the FCPA, as well as some of the penalties that can, can flow from it. Talk to us a little bit now about what you're seeing in terms of the shift. We're about a little over a year into the Biden administration. How is the Biden administration using the FCPA as part of its overall enforcement goals and approach, unlike prior administrations? Or, or is it a sort of a continuation and growth, outgrowth of what we saw in the past administration? To understand what the Biden administration is doing, you have to understand what preceded the Biden administration. So prior, basically prior to the Bush, the W. Bush administration, um, the FCPA was a dormant statute. It was used, but it was not a significant prosecution tool. The fraud section was, you know, a small group of lawyers. In the Bush administration, you had some major financial crises in the WorldCom and in the en Enron debacles, and then it started to expand beyond that into the foreign bribery. You also had some pretty notorious countries like Venezuela, for example, which became very prominent when the governments uh, basically turned into a kleptocracy as well as some other governments. So starting in the Bush administration, the fraud section was built up to focus on FCPA, a combination of some individual prosecutions, but much more corporate fines and corporate monitors. In the Clinton administration, actually, that preceded Bush, they realized that in prosecuting only American companies, they were anti-competitive versus the foreign companies that were bribing the foreign government. So the Clinton administration put a lot of pressure on the UN to basically expand the anti-bribery laws so that other countries would have anti-bribery laws. The problem is they weren't really enforcing them. So now we get to the Bush administration, and they start enforcing it more, and they build up the fraud section by the end of the Bush administration. And the Obama administration follows that. And the Obama administration became very aggressive at the company level in seeking really significant fines, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in fines. 
but here's the lead up to the Biden. So now the Trump administration in between, FCPA went down again. The criticism of the Trump administration is that they weren't really prosecuting crime as much, white collar crime. So now you get to the Biden administration and Biden, of course, was part of the Obama administration and saw the criticisms of only getting money from companies and that instead there should be a focus on individuals. And that's where the Biden administration has come in. The deputy attorney general had announced at a recent ABA function that the focus is not only going to be on the company. They don't want to destroy the company like Arthur Anderson was destroyed. What they want to do is put pressure on the company to put pressure on the individuals to get guilty pleas and prosecutions. So the Biden administration is now taking it a step beyond what the Obama administration had done, and they want to focus on putting individuals in jail. That's the current paradigm of FCPA. Let's talk about the regional dynamics at play when it comes to the FCPA. You talked a little bit about Latin America. You're based in Miami, so there's just natural synergies that flow from Latin America to your practice. But when I think about the world economy, I think about Latin America, I think about China, and I think about Russia. How do we compare and contrast the use of the FCPA as it relates to Latin America versus China and, say, Russia? The biggest problem with the FCPA, and let's not forget the use of the money laundering statutes as a component of an FCPA prosecution. Let me address that. The FCPA allows you to prosecute the domestic individual who pays the bribe, but it doesn't allow you to prosecute the foreign individual who accepts the bribe. The foreign government official is not subject to FCPA prosecution. However, most of these foreign individuals, one way or the other, implicate the U.S. banking system. They either get the bribe in dollars and it runs through the U.S. banking system, or they send some money up to Miami and buy some real estate, or they buy some companies. So the government decided some years ago that the way we're going to get the foreign officials is we're going to get them for money laundering. So if you're paid a bribe in pesos or in euros or in other currencies, and you don't come to the United States, then the foreign official can't be prosecuted. But if you use dollars or put your money in the United States, you can be. So you now, therefore, have the FCPA and the money laundering statutes working hand in hand. And you need the cooperation of the foreign governments to some extent to be able to make these prosecutions work. So in Latin America, they've been successful in the Southern District of Florida, the Eastern and Southern Districts of New York, and the Southern District of Texas with Venezuela and Ecuador and other Latin American countries because there's cooperation because of the U.S. relationship in South America that they get the cooperation they need. They've not had the same success when it comes to China or Russia. So what tends to happen is they don't really get them so much for the FCPA in those countries, but they get them for the money laundering. So once the Russian oligarch starts to move his money around and it comes to the United States, that's when they get them on the money laundering. But they don't get them as much on the FCPA because they're not getting the cooperation they need from those governments. And an interesting development yesterday, I saw reported that the Department of Justice uh, stated its first FCPA opinion procedure in two years. And for those listening, the FCPA opinion procedures allow U.S. companies to basically get the attorney general's judgment on whether certain conduct is in line with the enforcement policies or not. And a unknown requester wrote to the Department of Justice in October of 2021, sought an opinion from the Justice Department as to whether the agency would intend to bring an enforcement action under the anti-bribery provisions of the SCPA if the requester was to make a, quote, 
ransom-like payment to a third-party intermediary. And where, where when I read this development, Joe, my mind went immediately to Russia. It went immediately to cybersecurity issues. It went immediately to ransom at- attacks that are very prevalent and largely initiated out of China and Russia. And I guess much to my surprise, the department concluded, quote, based upon the specific facts presented by the requester, the proposed payment would not trigger enforcement action under the anti-bribery provisions of the FCPA because the requester would not be making a payment corruptly or to obtain or retain business. This gets right at the heart of that analysis that we were talking about at the outset with the difference between sort of a gratuity and a bribe. This is necessary to keep going with your business because you have to free up your resources that may have been attacked in a, in a ransomware attack or something like that. But what are your thoughts on that guidance from the DOJ? Well, I was involved in a case in which the Chiquita Banana Company had its banana farms in Colombia. And in the territory that it was in, they were being overrun at certain points from the leftist guerrillas, known as the FARC, and at other times they were overrun by the rightist guerrillas, known as the AUK. And each time they were overrun, the guerrillas would come in and make a demand for ransom and would say, if you don't pay us ransom, we're going to burn your banana plantation and we're going to kill your people. So at one point, Chiquita, an American company out of Ohio, went to the Department of Justice. This was back in the Bush administration. And they said, look, we're being squeezed to pay ransom. This is extortion. If we pay this, are you going to prosecute us? Kind of similar to the scenario you just described, but with a little bit more twist to it. It wasn't just financial. They were threatening to kill Chiquita employees. And the Department of Justice and the Bush administration said, we cannot give you clearance to do that. Well, Chiquita went on and did it anyhow. And then lo and behold, the Department of Justice prosecuted them for doing it and got a $75 million fine out of them. And then they got sued here in Florida by the victims of all these killings in Colombia, and they've been involved in litigation for the last 10 years. So the moral of that story is, I don't know how confident I would be, especially with an FCPA opinion, because maybe it doesn't violate the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act technically, but there are a host of other laws that might be violated by the payment of a ransom payment, uh, which could support a money laundering prosecution, because if you violate a foreign law, with a ransom payment, and then you move the money to the United States, which is, of course, where the money comes after you sell your bananas, you now have a money laundering prosecution. So I wouldn't be real confident if I were general counsel for a company that the Department of Justice tells me it's okay to pay a ransom because they have changed their mind in the past, and then you end up getting in the crosshairs of a DOJ investigation and or civil lawsuits. Well, it just goes to show, Joe, that these these areas are far from black and white. There's lots of shades of gray, lots of factual analysis that needs to be carefully considered when companies doing business overseas are making decisions about how to conduct themselves in those foreign environments. Let's shift gears for a second to sort of the prevention and compliance. Now, with recent guidance from DOJ about the existence of compliance programs as a a way to mitigate against criminal prosecution, it strikes me as something that's critically important in this area. And I know at our firm, we do a lot of work on the compliance side as a proactive approach to trying to curb enforcement action against our clients. What's the keys to effective prevention and compliance as it relates to FCPA for U.S. companies doing business overseas? 
the key is that if you're going to implement a compliance program, then you have to follow the compliance program. There's nothing better than implementing a good compliance program and following it. That will give you great protection with the Department of Justice. And there's nothing worse than acting as if you implemented a compliance program, but then turning the blind eye to the bribery when your compliance program picks it up. So the devil is really in the details of compliance. It's easy to get a compliance program. There's a whole industry out there of law firms and experts that can come to your company. And I've, I've put in compliance programs for companies and they can do that. But then the question is once the program's in place and now all of a sudden compliance picks up that some salesperson in a foreign country or some consultant is involved in a shady deal, do they look the other way or do they really follow their compliance? So the key is, if you're going to do it, then you got to really do it or don't do it at all because the Department of Justice thinks nothing is worse than claiming that you do it and then not really doing it. And, and it strikes me, too, that when it comes to the companies that are large enough to be operating internationally, right, you're, you probably have lots of levels of employees. How do you most directly and effectively communicate to your sales force, your rank and file, your people that are actually boots on the ground to ensure, you know, it's assumed, I guess, that the executives may may not be making these decisions. And if they are, they probably belong in jail. But if you have tentacles that spread internationally and that rank and file workforce is out there on the ground, what's the best and most effective way to communicate to them so as to insulate the company from potential liability down the road? Well, first of all, there are multinational companies that are involved in a lot of foreign business activity, and they have very sophisticated compliance programs. They have very sophisticated internal counsel and compliance directors and external firms. And the first hint they get of an FCPA issue, they know how to jump on it, get the documents, interview the people. And, and through that process, they know how to educate their people and their workforce and their consultants. You'd be surprised at how many small companies are involved in foreign investments. Uh, for example, Miami is a very entrepreneurial town. We have a lot of small companies that are involved in foreign investments. They may be a 100-employee company, and they're the ones that are probably at more danger than the multinational companies because they don't have the budgets, nor do they have the experience in having a sophisticated compliance program. And so what I've seen is that the, the multinationals, they pretty much know the rules. It's the smaller companies that are involved in foreign business activity that need to be educated and protect themselves. Let's take another hard pivot to the response. Assume for a moment that inevitably this type of issue is going to pop up for a company doing business overseas. What's the response look like from the company, its counsel, in the immediate aftermath of being informed that there's an investigation underway? Well, the one thing that the company should not be doing is running off to the Department of Justice. There's always this notion that if we get to the department first and tell them we did wrong, they're going to treat us. Here's the problem. If you haven't done your internal investigation first, if you haven't really found out what the true facts are, you could be hurting yourself much more by running in too soon. So the very first thing is you don't want to be running to the Department of Justice. Let's say you get information that somebody in the sales force was involved in illegal activity in a foreign country. The very first thing you have to do is jump on it and get the facts and get the documents and get the emails and analyze it and have somebody who's qualified to analyze do that analysis and not just run off to the Department of Justice and self-report. 
I would say that after you've done the analysis and found up how far up the chain it went, then I think you would decide what your next strategy is and make that decision about when to go to the Department of Justice and self-report because that is a big factor in how it ends up getting resolved. But don't run off too quickly. Do your investigation the right way at first. And Joe, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. I think one of the key takeaways is that the modern global economic structure really requires some sophisticated legal guidance. And we at Fox Rothschild have the resources and the expertise to be able to help companies of all sizes navigate these global challenges. My main takeaways from our conversation today, uh, Joe, are that there really are shades of gray when it comes to what is a bribe versus a gratuity, that having a compliance program is great, but actually carrying it out and actually following it is the real struggle. And finally, when, when the response to the investigation comes around, if inevitably that does knock on your doorstep, you really need to dig in and do your homework before you run in and try to self-report because there could be hidden landmines that exist within the company that could really come back and hurt you bad. And with that, I wanna thank you once again. Thank you all for joining us today. See you next time on The Presumption of Innocence. And if you do encounter any of these types of issues with your foreign activities, please give us a call. We're uniquely equipped. I think today's conversation just demonstrates the global reach of our practice and our ability to navigate the most sophisticated challenges of modern commerce. So thank you so much, Joe, and we'll talk soon. Thank you. <laughs>